Chapter 23, Part 1 of Two Years in Oregon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Henry. Two Years in Oregon by Wallace Nash. Chapter 23, Part 1. From all that has gone before, the deduction is plain that on the solution of the transportation question in the interests of the fixed and industrious population of the state depends absolutely the growth and prosperity of Oregon. Nature has done her part. The words of Messrs. George M. Pullman of Chicago and William Endicott, Jr. of Boston, in their report of August 1, 1880, to the stockholders of the Oregon Railway and Navigation Company, will be echoed by every man who is now or has been in Oregon with eyes to see. They wrote as follows. Our observations afforded, in the first place, ample confirmation of all we had previously heard and read of the propitious climate, great attractions of scenery, and wonderful agricultural resources of western and eastern Oregon and eastern Washington Territory. We believe that in these respects, those regions are not surpassed, if equaled, by any other portion of the United States. It can indeed be safely said that nowhere else in this country do rich soil and mild climate combine to the same degree in ensuring such extraordinary results of almost every agricultural pursuit as regards quantity, quality, and regularity of yield. The striking evidence of past and present growth which we found everywhere forced at the same time the irresistible conclusion upon us that we were beholding but the beginning of the sure and rapid progress in population, productiveness, and prosperity, which will be witnessed in the immediate future within the vast stretch of country watered by the great river Columbia and its numerous tributaries. The reader of this book will, I think, admit that the facts herein detailed go far to justify the conclusions summed up in these few but carefully chosen words. How does this transportation question now stand, and what, if any, matters are in progress or contemplation to affect it? In the first place, the companies are all free to manage their own business in their own way. They charge what they like favor what persons and places they choose, and load on others burdens heavy to be borne. I have before indicated what was the purpose of the bill introduced in the legislature of 1880, to prevent discrimination by common carriers. The Oregonian commented on the loss of the measure in these terms. We present today the report of the hostile Senate committee on this bill, the report shows why the proposed measure was both an unjust and an impracticable one. It should be apparent to everyone that railways never can be operated in this way. The confusion and disorder would be endless. Besides, every railroad which is undertaken and constructed as an actual business enterprise is entitled to make fair earnings, instead of being annoyed by straw railroads got up for speculative purposes, it ought to have protection from such annoyance. Oregon Railway and Navigation Company In further illustration of the working of the present system, 
I would instance the fact that from Corvallis to Portland for about a year, the freight on wheat by the river steamboats of the Oregon Railway and Navigation Company has been $1 a ton, and of this, 50 cents had to be paid for passing the locks at Oregon City. The rate immediately previous to this was $3 and a half. This ridiculously low rate was put on in order to destroy the traffic of the East and West Side Railroads, and is in strong contrast with the rate from Corvallis to Junction City, some 20 miles up the river, where no such reasons existed, and which stood through this period at about tenfold the $1 rate. No sooner did the president of the Oregon Railway and Navigation Company think he had secured control of the two railroads, then steps were prepared to quadruple the previous rate. The question of control stood adjourned, and the $1 rate was confirmed, but having seen reason to think his acquisition secure, the rates from Portland to Corvallis, 97 miles by railroad, both by railroads and steamboats, have just now, April 1881, been raised to $6 per ton, a rate equal to that charged in the infancy of the business 20 years ago. The lion's share of the carrying business of the state is in the hands of the Oregon Railway and Navigation Company, and with them are closely identified the hopes of the city of Portland. This company owns two of the steamers plying between Portland and San Francisco, the Oregon and the Columbia. With these two steamers, or with the George W. Elder as the predecessor of the Columbia, they carried from the 1st of July, 1879, to the 30th of June, 1880, 17,333 passengers and 101,661 tons of freight. The gross receipts were $636,888, the net profits $286,459. As we know from the published circular of Mr. Villard, the president, that the cost of the Columbia was $400,000, and the Oregon is a smaller and decidedly less expensive ship, the proportion of net earnings of the vessels in question to their total cost will be seen to be about enough to pay 10% per annum on their cost and to buy the vessels out and out in three years and a half. The fare from Portland to San Francisco, even while these earnings were being made, stood at $20 the first-class passenger. News has just arrived that these fares are to be raised to $30 a head, if the same rate of expense is maintained, as during last year, the earnings at the higher figure now put on will be increased by about $100,000, and enough will be realized to pay for the fleet in about two years and a half. With 25 steamboats, sternwheelers, navigating the Columbia and Willamette Rivers, and 12 barges and two scows, several of the boats being old and laid up in ordinary much of the time, reducing thus materially the fleet in real service, the company earned $1,992,836 gross and $1,101,766 net profit. If $50,000 is deducted for the earnings of the barges, it will be seen that the average net earnings of the 25 river steamers are positively $44,070 each. 
the fleet could be replaced for less than the sum of the net profit of one year. Like Oliver, asking for more, they are positively raising these freights also. Railroad along the Columbia The railroad possessions of the company for the year in question consisted of but 48 miles, and of these the line from Walla Walla to Wallula on the Upper Columbia, a distance of about 30 miles, was the longest. The other two being short strips of portage railroad round the Cascades or rapids on the Columbia. The passengers carried were 12,588, the tons of freight 72,149, and the net profits $269,004 or $5,604 a mile. The company is engaged in constructing a line of railroad along the south bank of the Columbia, the portion from Celilo, the upper end of the rapids, at the lower end of which the town of the Dalles is situated, to Wallula, just over the Washington Territory border, a distance of 115 miles, is just completed. The line is being extended to the city of Portland. The works between the Dalles and the western end of the pass through the Cascade Mountains being of the most severe and expensive character, at least two tunnels, and mile after mile of blasting and cutting through solid rock, where the mountains tower perpendicular above, would inspire dismay in the soul of any ordinary railroad man. But the word has gone forth that the road has to follow what is facetiously called the Pass of the Columbia through the Cascades, and doubtless it will be done. Several thousand Chinamen are at work. Steam drills are busy perforating the rocks. Scows have to be moored alongside in the river, there not being enough room for the track between mountain and water, while the perpendicular faces of the cliffs are being tormented and torn. And thus, about seventy miles of construction of this nature have to be got through. When completed, of course, the result will be at once to transfer nearly all of as many of the 117,000 passengers as traveled in the company's boats on the Columbia to the cars, and a vast quantity of the freight must follow the same route. But another factor is intended shortly to come into play. The Northern Pacific Railroad is vigorously at work, and in a year or two will compete with the Oregon Railway and Navigation Company for the Washington Territory and extreme eastern Oregon trade. The passengers and freight entrusted to the Northern Pacific Line will be carried from Wallula, the Columbia River point above referred to, to Tacoma on Puget Sound. By this route, a saving of 151 miles in actual distance will be effected, and the traffic will reach the deep and still waters of Puget Sound, far away from the troubles and stickings of the Willamette and Columbia mouths, and the delays, dangers, and expenses of the Columbia Bar. It is true that before this result is gained, the line must cross the Cascade Mountains, but it is well known that a pass at less than 3,400 feet exists, and the engineers have no doubt whatever that this piece of road will keep pace with the rest to the port. How to get control Mark now another feature in the case. The east and west side railroads on either side of the Willamette River 
compete with the boats of the Oregon Railway and Navigation Company for the trade of the Willamette Valley. The railroads naturally divert the passenger traffic almost entirely and carry a large quantity of freight. They would carry more and earn a fair profit for their owners, the German and English bondholders, but instead of a fair competition, the Oregon Railway and Navigation Company, as I have said, put down the freights from Corvallis downward to Portland on grain to $1 per ton, of course an impossible rate for either river or railroad to profit by. Why is this? Because what Mr. Villard calls the control of these railroads is vitally necessary to the future continuance of the Oregon Railway and Navigation Company's stocks in their exalted dividends and consequent enormous market value. Therefore, it is sought now to destroy the earning powers of these railroads, to force the owners into succumbing to the policy of control. One more step. The Oregon Railway and Navigation Company owns practically no land, that is to say, it is interested speculatively in the rise of value in property in Portland by having invested a large sum, I believe $199,000, in the purchase of 484 acres of land in and near the city. But outside this and its railroad track, the company owns altogether about 3,055 acres of land in scattered pieces, only about 850 acres of which lie in Oregon, the rest in Washington Territory, and a bit or two in Idaho. We will not omit to mention its wharves at the various stopping places of the boats, as they represent the expenditure of a considerable sum. Once again, if anything at all is clear, it is that the inflated value of this company's securities depends solely on the continuance of their monopoly. I have shown that on the Columbia River this is threatened by the Northern Pacific, and also by themselves in effect by the substitution of the costly railroad line for the inexpensive boats, and the consequent devotion of both investments, namely that in the boats and that in the railroad, to the same traffic which the competition of the Northern Pacific is certain to reduce in gross volume. Now turn to the Willamette Valley traffic and scrutinize the position there. Not only is there the existing competition of the railroads, which is fatal, so long as it is genuine, to the earning of large profits from the north and south traffic of the valley, both in passengers and goods, but here come in two competitors more, the Scotch narrow-gauge system also centers everything in Portland and has succeeded, after a hard fight with the city authorities, in securing a large tract of land for depot and terminal purposes. It had the audacity to claim a right-of-way right through the track purchased by the Oregon Railway and Navigation Company, and under the law of eminent domain, as it exists in Oregon, it would have got it, aye, and used it too, with but scant regard for the feelings of the high and mighty corporation which had marked it for their own. But a working arrangement was with much difficulty made, by which the Scotch line runs free of charge alongside the other, right through its land to the terminus of the narrow gauge. This Scotch line has put boats on the Willamette also. They ply between Ray's Landing, about 17 miles up the Willamette, and Portland. 
the narrow gauge also has an east side and a west side line through the Willamette Valley. The east side line runs north and south, a short distance from the foothills of the Cascades, and has now got as far as Brownsville, about 120 miles from Portland. Their west side line runs through the rich farming country in Polk County by Dallas to Sheridan and a junction with the western Oregon broad gauge nearby. This is also an ambitious company who are pushing surveys across the Cascade Range. The narrow-gauge system is yet by no means complete, but when it is, it will become at once a very dangerous rival both to the east and west side roads and also to the boats of the Oregon Railway and Navigation Company on the Willamette. So seriously did Mr. Villard feel the impending danger that it is no secret in Oregon that a confidential agent was dispatched by him to Scotland to endeavor to put the Scotch investors out of conceit with their property, and failing that, he attempted to secure some of their stock so as to gain a footing inside their camp, but there also he failed. The Blind Pool Shortly before these pages were written occurred the episode of what is known in financial circles in America as the Blind Pool. Mr. Villard caused it to be known among his circle of followers that he desired the use of $8 million. According to statements made on his authority, he not only secured it, but in all 15 millions were offered him. Quietly and secretly, he used the eight millions in buying up stock of the Northern Pacific Railroad in the New York market. Nor did he show his hand until he had thus secured twenty-seven millions par value of the stock of that road. When his great gun was thus loaded, he discharged it full at the head of Mr. Billings, the president of the Northern Pacific, and those directors who had loyally cooperated with him in the reorganization of the company and the redemption of its securities from the chaos into which they had fallen following the J. Cook failure. And the invader boldly claimed that he had secured the control of that company, too, and proposed to oust the president to install a representative of the blind pool. But an unexpected check was made. It seems that part of the reconstituted stock of the company, amounting to $18 million, was as yet in the treasury of the company, but was the property of diverse persons who had cooperated in or assented to the reconstruction. This being issued, as Mr. Billings and his friends claim, in fulfillment of engagements long since entered into, displaced the center of gravity and caused it to incline heavily towards the Billings section. A vociferous outcry was, of course, heard, the courts were appealed to, and the result of what promises to be a long and costly litigation remains to be seen. Even without the entrance on the field of the new forces I am about to describe, the position of the Oregon Railway and Navigation Company appears to be a very perilous one. Under the chieftainship of Mr. Villard, who was no novice at the art of playing with railroad companies as counters in the game of Beggar My Neighbor, a vast amount of eastern capital was taken up by the aid of the enormous profits earned by the previously existing Oregon Steamship and Oregon Steam Navigation Company. 
Then followed naturally an era of really delusive prosperity, while the expenditures of this capital in substituting the new lamps of costly railroads for the magical old lamps of stern-wheel steamboats was going on. But in order to secure this capital, it was necessary to publish to the world the enormous profits the earlier companies were making. The effects were twofold and immediate. One was to open the eyes of the farmers of Oregon to the fact that they were paying for the transport to market of their crops sums utterly disproportionate to the cost and risk of the services rendered. And thus it was certain that, ere long, measures would be taken in the legislature of Oregon, similar in purport to those adopted in other states, to check and curb the power of discrimination, which was the engine used to force the traffic on to the boats and trains of the Oregon Railway and Navigation Company. The measure to that end introduced in the session of the legislature of 1880 was, it is true, defeated by the strenuous efforts of the company, aided by their Portland friends. But that success was dearly bought, and the process was so patent as to awaken the farmers with whom the real power dwells in a fashion that will soon be felt. Yaquina Bay The other result, equally inevitable, was to call into active life plans long in preparation for constructing an east and west line across the state. Relying on Yaquina Bay as the outport, and on the trade of the Willamette Valley as the mainstay of the road. But the enterprise had other features to recommend it. The Willamette Valley and Coast Railroad Company had been originated four or five years back by the farmers of the valley to construct a railroad between Corvallis and Yaquina Bay. It had obtained a charter from the legislature giving it authority to extend its line across the state to the eastern boundary at a point directly en route to Boise City, Idaho. This had been long ago marked out as the probable limit where connection either with a branch from the Union Pacific Railroad or with some other road pushing westward to the ocean might be made. The Willamette Valley and Coast Railroad received in its charter from the state immunity from taxation for twenty years, and also a grant of all the rich tide and overflowed lands in Benton County, amounting to probably upward of 100,000 acres. Not content with this, the framer of this scheme had obtained the right of purchase, on the basis of value of land in eastern Oregon ten years ago, of the grant of lands in aid of the construction of the Willamette Valley and Cascade Mountains military wagon road, amounting to 850,000 acres. A sketch of the history of this road has been given before in these pages, and the character of the country through which it runs. End of chapter 23, part 1. Recording by Jennifer Henry.